So, this morning, um, we are going to be looking at Psalm 62. My name is Carter Brown. I am the Director of Missions and Cultural Formation. Sounds cool, right? Um, means I get to hang out with 20s and 30s a lot and do stuff overseas. So, this morning, as I was thinking about how to kind of welcome an intro, I thought, you know, Tom and Matt are gone. And they get back sometime today, and they won't be here this morning, which is wonderful. And if you were here about two months ago, you caught that? If you were here about two months ago, um, Tom was preaching a sermon, and he talked about Absalom. And then Tom, being such a loving, loving uh, head pastor, took about five minutes in the sermon and just blasted me from my hair. It had nothing to do with the sermon. It's just like he had to get it off his chest. So I was like, you know, what am I going to say? What am I going to do while Tom is gone? Am I going to talk about his haircut that's been the same since he was probably born with that weird cut right here? So it's, I don't know what that is. Um, or how he's obsessed with Purell and he's really OCD and he can't like go like two minutes without putting it on. Or how he used to wear baggy denim t-shirts on stage. Like I was like, what am I going to talk about? And I said, I'm going to take the high road, you know? <laughs> I'm just going to take the high road, and I'm just going to leave it at that and say, Tom, this is your battle. Uh, So we're going to leave that over here, and I'm sure Tom will try to rebuttal now later. Um, And we're going to jump into Psalm 62, and I want to do something a little bit different this morning. If you spend time in your personal worship going through this passage, as Mason said earlier, it's very familiar. Most likely, you have read it before. If you haven't read it, you've probably heard at least part of it quoted. It's a very familiar passage because it's beautiful. But you probably saw a word in there that you were kind of confused on what it meant, and the word is Selah. Raise your hand if you were confused on what in the world that meant or you read it. Wow, we got some smart people. Okay, never mind, check that. Um, Well, the word Selah is, it's a musical instruction, most likely, and it has something to do with telling the band or the orchestra or the person playing a stick with some strings on it back in the day, um, what to do. And a lot of people think that the word Selah means pause and reflect. And I think that is such a beautiful definition of the word. And I think that if every word in scripture is intentional and it's there for a reason, and David puts this word Selah, which most likely probably means pause and reflect, that it's there for a purpose. And if you're like me, you read this passage, especially because it's familiar, and you read it and you are done with it in a minute, and then you kind of maybe journal a little bit, and you don't pause and you don't reflect. So I want to read through Psalm 62 right now together, and every time we get to Selah, I want to pause and reflect. And you're supposed to pause and reflect on what you just read. So let's try to do that together, and then we'll break it down and see what David and the Lord has for us this morning. Let's read Psalm 62. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that passage. If you don't, you could look on the screen. It says this, To the choir master according to Jedithon, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He, is only, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah.
For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He, is, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. That power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Amen. So as we read that, you probably were familiar with that passage. And you probably picked up on the theme as you spend time in personal worship working through this passage this week, or even just now as we read and we paused and we reflected, that this passage speaks of refuge, God as refuge, or other words that connotate that idea. Fortress, rock, salvation, our hope is in him. All these words that kind of symbolize the idea of refuge. And throughout scripture, there's this connection between the role of protection or the role of providing refuge and the role of king, of kingship. There's this weird, weird story in Judges. If you've ever read Judges, there's a lot of weird stories in there. But Judges 9 has this weird story. It's a fable about these trees, like trees outside. And they're going around all these trees and they're trying to find another tree that will rule over them and be king. So they go to the fig tree and the olive tree, and they go to the grapevine, and they ask all of them individually, will you rule over us? They all turn down the trees. And then they go to the thorn bush, and they ask this question. They say, will you rule over us? Essentially, will you be our king? And the thorn bush replies and says this, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come find refuge in my shade. All throughout the Bible, there's this close, intimate connection between the role of king and the role of protection. And in this passage, David is picking up on that. David is the king of Israel, and he is here saying, it is not my role to provide protection and refuge and rest and a fortress for God's people. That is only God's role. He is the king, the ultimate king, and it is his, it's his role and responsibility to do that for us. So let's work through the psalm and see what David has to say about that. The beginning, this is the familiar part, this and when he repeats it. He says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Symbols of protection, symbols of stability. God is a rock. He is a refuge. He is a fortress. You are safe there. You can find rest there. You can find comfort there. All these ideas. And David is saying this is only God. Only to him does this role and responsibility. It's a beautiful, beautiful crafting of words here. And a beautiful idea that God is these things. And David is going to continue in this passage and, not, and say that it's not enough for you just to kind of say, that's beautiful, that's really nice, that God is these things. He's going to tell us that life necessitates that you actually believe and live out that as true. 
He picks it up in the next part. He says in verse 3 and 4, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. David is speaking most likely a personal experience. If you know the story of David, it's a lot of highs and a lot of lows, and there's a lot of people that were out against him. They wanted to attack him. They wanted to take him out as king. They wanted to, to you know, defame him. They wanted to shame him, oftentimes his own family. And David is saying here, listen, how long will people do this? He's speaking of people or situations or temptations that want to take you off of your calling or your purpose or your understanding that God is in fact refuge and rest and a fortress and a rock. And he speaks of this leaning wall and tottering fence. And I think it's, he's implying more than just it's almost like a fence that's about to fall down. He's speaking of these temptations these adversities, this suffering, these people that are attacking you and look great on the outside, but inwardly they're really cursing you and trying to shame you and take you off of your path, your calling. They're like a big, huge wall, like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. And if you know anything about building, if you build a wall incorrectly, it's, it bulges in the center and it looks twice its size. It looks impressive, especially back then when they used to build it. The wall was built incorrectly. It would bulge at the center. And it would look very impressive in stature. It would look very strong, very safe. You'd want to go hide behind those walls, or you'd want to stand under those walls because it'd be safe there. And David is comparing these temptations and these adversities and these things that will face you like a leaning wall or a tottering fence, an ill-built wall that looks impressive and looks great on the outside. It looks strong, but it is going to crash down so quickly. And this is probably very real for David. If you know David, um, he had everything he wanted. He was the king of Israel. He had all things, and he failed to recognize the truth of Psalm 62. And he looked at a leaning wall and a tottering fence that looked impressive and looked nice to him and looked safe, and her name was Bathsheba. And he went after that, and then once he realized he made a mistake, he thought, well, I'm the king of Israel, and I can do what I want, so why don't I just go ahead and try to kill her husband and kill her? And then he did, and then things got bad for David. So David here is speaking of personal experience. Most likely at the moment, people are trying to attack him. He's going through suffering, adversity, temptation to look and to trust in these great big walls that look so impressive, and he's had experience with it in the past. And then David repeats what he says earlier. He says, for. It's almost like he, he, he says, God, here's who you are, your rock, your refuge, your rest, your salvation. My hope is in you. How long am I going to continue to be tempted and face adversity and face suffering and be so intrigued by these huge big walls that look impressive, but I know are just like a teetering fence that are going to fall over on any second? But he, and then he repeats and he says, for. It's almost like you can feel if you read through the Psalms, the Psalms is so full of emotion. You can feel David like on his knees, clenching his fist. Maybe he sharpened a little stick and dipped it in some ink and he's writing this on papyrus. And he's sitting there and he's like, I got to repeat what I just said earlier because I really need to get this. Maybe that's why Jesus later in the New Testament tells us that we have to pick up our cross and follow him daily. Because as human beings, unstable as we are, 
This is a daily action. It's not like, yeah, God's our refuge, our rest. Good, got that, check that off, that's true of me. It's like every day, all the time, continually, especially when we're adversity and suffering and there's temptations, that we have to come back and say, for God is our refuge. Not these walls that look great in front of us. So David here, maybe in tears, definitely focused and pleading to himself, he says in verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. He repeats, For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is from God. This is absolutely beautiful, right? David speaking of the sufficiency of God as king. God is the one that we should hope in. God is the one that we should trust in. He is the one that we have rest and we have refuge. And though these walls look so impressive and they're so tempting to trust in them, they're like a leaning wall on a tottering fence. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful idea. But do we believe it? Do we trust it? Because as unstable creatures... If you're like me, it's really, really, really easy to begin to not trust in the Lord for these things, but to trust in yourself. And the things that the world and the walls out there that look great and promise a lot can provide for aid and for help. You see, David here is pleading for his soul that he would find this to be true. He's pleading that this would be true of himself, that he repeats it twice, and then it's not enough for him. He goes into verse 8, and he turns out to us. And he says this to us. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And that trust in him at all times is a really interesting idea. Because David previously is speaking about adversity and suffering and temptation. Saying, listen, in temptation, in suffering, in adversity, trusting God is your refuge. It's, it's, you're only going to find it in him. I had to repeat it twice to myself. You're probably going to have to do the same. But then he looks and he says, at all times. Meaning prosperity and adversity. Joy and suffering. Pour out your heart before him. For God is a refuge for us. You see, David here seems to suggest that for us, at all times, meaning daily, regardless of circumstances, we're to pour our heart out before him, which is either maybe through song or through prayer, that we're to come before the Lord and we're to lay at his feet everything, the walls that we're trusting in that we think look great, the temptations that are, uh, that are going on in our heart, the people or the things that are attacking us and waging war in our lives, and we feel like it's never going to stop and it's never going to end, that we're to bring that to the Lord in, so- in song or in prayer daily at all times. It's a really simple command, but it's insanely difficult. He's, David's saying, listen, regardless of your circumstances, don't let your griefs Don't keep your griefs in. Don't let them ruminate inside of you. Don't just think, I'm okay, everything's good. Hey, things are going well for me. I'm not suffering, there's not much adversity, I'm doing pretty well in my job, my family seems like we're pretty much together except for Thanksgiving coming, it could get wild, who knows what happens on holidays. You know, things are going well. He's saying at all times, you need to recognize your need to come before the Lord and to pour everything out 
to him. All your griefs, all your pain, all your temptations. And place him as the one that is deserving that honor. Or the times of prosperity. And trusting in him as the one that can come to your aid in times of adversity and suffering. In verse 9, if we weren't clear enough, he makes it pretty clear. He says, those of low estate are but a breath, and those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Essentially, David says something that's really striking for us, and it's, I know this, but I don't really know this. He says, human life is like a vapor. It's like a breath. And that your estate, your socioeconomic standing, doesn't matter. If you, if you are poor, your life is but a breath. If you are rich, your life is a lie or a delusion. He's comparing the estate of humanity, low and high, to a second. Essentially saying, why would you trust in the things that you can accumulate and the things that you can have and the way that you can live and the way that you can fix yourself in this life it's, if it's just a breath, if it's just a lie? And this isn't to diminish poverty. It's not, to, it's not, it's like not, not like a, a free pass for Christians. Well, 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 poverty, David says, is but a breath, so I don't need to worry about it. No, there are sincere and really, really hard suffering and adversity in poverty. And Christ and the apostles and the rest of the Old Testament makes it pretty clear that we as Christians are supposed to care for the poor, feed the needy, love the least of these. But David is saying here that the estate that you sit in, poor or rich, is like a delusion or it's like a breath. It doesn't matter. And he's going to... to, to go on and he's going to say in the, the most the crux of the passage that if you really want to see this become true trusting in God as refuge and rest finding silence in him having your soul come before him and feel comforted to feel safe you have to lay aside the idea and the vain confidences of riches because here's the truth whether you're poor or whether you're rich the temptation to trust in riches is just the same. If you're rich, you may think that because you have wealth, and by rich I mean all of us Americans, <laughs> that you may think that because you can pay your bills and because you have food and you have shelter and you have a car and you have a good paying job and maybe you have a good savings account and you can provide all these things, that you're good, you're fine. Everything's okay because you have that. And if that's stripped from you, well, then you need to, to get that again. Hoping and trusting in riches. And then he looks at the poor in the same breath and he says, listen, don't think that having things and having wealth and having riches is going to solve your issues and going to somehow make your life now full of rest and full of peace and full of hope because you have money instead of not having it. And he clarifies that pretty clear in verse 10. It says, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. He says, listen, it doesn't matter whether you've accumulated money in dishonorable means or honorable means. It doesn't matter the ventures at which you use to accumulate wealth. If riches increase, don't set your heart upon them. 
And this is such a hard idea. We may, we may sit here and say, yeah, that's true. You know, don't set your heart on riches. Don't trust in them. But if you're really honest with yourself, how hard is that to really believe and to live out? He says, don't set your heart upon them. And he's not saying it's bad to have resources or to have a job that pays you money or to have wealth in some fashion. He's not saying that. He's, a rich, he's one of the richest people in the entire world. He's the king of Israel. He's saying, don't set your heart upon them. Don't allow wealth and status and acclamation and rewards and possessions and all the things, all the big, huge, impressive walls that the world promises to give rest and refuge and peace and hope. Don't set your heart upon those things. Because something happens when you do that. It's more than a prideful spirit. It's more than it affects others, though those things are true. It's that when you don't govern your heart and you don't look at the Lord as the one that has, is where you find only hope and only rest and only refuge and only protection, you don't give him the role and responsibility of protecting and providing and caring for you. When you don't give that to him, but you give it to riches and you drink that down into your soul, and you let it take over, and you set your heart upon that, you begin to become intoxicated with your own greatness. And you begin to forget your position before the Lord, that your life is like a breath. And the king of all kings is the one that we should be coming to daily pouring our heart out to. Not all the other things we pour our heart out to. And this, to be honest... This is really hard to wrap our minds around for for myself, I think for all of us, because listen, God is abstract, right? He's out there. He's here. We feel him. We, we, We experience his presence. We know his love. We hear his truth. We see how he's transformed us, but he's still abstract. And things are tangible. We can use them. We can see their benefit. We can feel the sense of satisfaction in their retrieval. And it's really easy to trust in those things because they give us that immediate, impressive-looking, safe feeling. And David is saying, don't put your heart upon those things. Don't set your heart there and don't pour out your heart to those things because they are like a teetering wall, a, a, a leaning fence. It will fall upon you. And what will happen, most of all, is that when they fall upon us, if you're like me, when something that you've trusted in and put your heart upon and set your heart upon falls upon you and crashes upon you, and you feel the sense and the truth of that, you climb out of the rubble, and then you begin to erect the wall again with the same stones. Right? Like, yes, God, that's true. Let me pour my heart out to you. Let me trust in you as refuge and strength, this beautiful concept, this great idea. I'm not going to set my heart upon riches. I'm not going to set my heart upon this world and this life and the things that I can get and the health that I can have and the things that I can experience. I'm going to set my heart upon you daily. And then we lose track because we're unstable and we trust in something that's like a leaning wall and it falls upon us and it crashes down and we get out and we dust ourselves off. And we go to God for a little bit, and then we look back at that rubble and we say, and we start building that back up again. And we build it wrong and it crashes again. 
And David ends this passage, and I think it's so beautiful, and it's so purposeful, and it's so important for us to get this last section. Verse 12, 11 and 12. David says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. He sets this passage, this idea, this whole thing, God is refuge and rest, pouring your heart out before him, setting your heart upon him, as eternal matters. This is an eternal issue. Do you set your heart upon the Lord, or do you set your heart upon yourself and your life? That's like a breath. And then he says, listen, God's spoken one time, meaning he's, God speaks once, he doesn't change, he does not manipulate it, it's one time, he's true. And David says, well, twice I've heard this, meaning most likely that he's had to tell himself this multiple times. It's not like he heard it once. Oh, great. God's refuge. Woo. Okay. Now let me go off throughout my day. No, he has to continue to tell himself, even in this passage, he tells himself twice that we have to continue to hear this truth. And then he does something very, very interesting. He says, the power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. He ends his psalm about God as refuge and rest with two attributes of God, his all power and him being all loving. All power belongs to God. He is the example of love, steadfast love, never ending love. It's always loving. And this, you, you may have run through this really quickly but this is really interesting. Why does he do this? Why does he tell us in the very end, God is all-powerful and he's all-loving? I think it's because he knows that if we believe that and really believe that, we will begin to live a life that puts God as our refuge and our rest. We'll begin to pour our heart out to God. We'll be able to not set our heart on riches. We'll set our heart upon God. But the question is, do we? Do we really, really, really believe that God is all-loving and all-powerful? Because this is a question of our culture, and this is a question of my life also. How in the world can a God, think about this, how in the world that can a God that is all-loving and all-powerful allow you to live in a world like this? How can a God that loves you, his love is steadfast, all-loving, and he's all-powerful. He can do anything. How can that, those things combine and he allows his creatures and his people to live in a world full of suffering and violence and hate and oppression and abuse? He allows us to trust in these walls that crash upon us and we climb out, we dust ourselves off, we build it back up again. How is that God all-loving and all-powerful? It seems like those things don't go together. So why does David end this psalm with this? You see, I think we have to look a little bit below why we're asking that. Here's why we ask that question. Maybe you've asked it before. Maybe you've never asked it in your life. Here's why we ask it. If God is king, which means he has the role and responsibility of protecting and providing for us. He is the one, as David says, that is our refuge and our rest and our hope where we find peace. If that is, if that is God and that is his role and responsibility as our king, then why would he put us in this world? Why would he allow these things to be true? Why would he allow what's happened to me and what's happening to me to continue to happen? Why would we have this type of suffering? It's the problem of suffering, right? 
How can an all-loving and all-powerful God allow this suffering? And this is a fair question. I think this is a really fair question, and it's really important for us to look at because the fact that we have faith is the reason we have this question, right? If you don't believe in God, there's no problem of suffering. If God doesn't exist, then suffering just is. But if you believe in God, especially a God as we see in Psalm 62, we have a little bit of an issue. How does this work? You see, this, this question isn't a new one. Aristotle talked about this long, long, long time ago. Buddhism, if any of you are familiar with Buddhism, Buddhism's whole idea is to escape from suffering, okay? It has four noble truths. The first truth that is to live is to suffer. That is life. Life is suffering. You're born and birth, there's suffering. Then there's disappointment in life, that's suffering. Then there's pain in life, that's suffering. And then eventually you die, that's suffering. Life is suffering. And in Buddhism... Your goal, the goal of life, is to escape from suffering, and the way that you do that is to end its cause. You have to end the cause of suffering in order to escape from it. And the way that you do that is you attack the ego and self-interest. Kind of interesting. Sounds familiar, right? You attack the ego and self-interest. And for Buddhism, they say, what you have to do is you have to understand that your ego is a delusion, and you have to transform consciousness. That's why they do all the meditation and all that stuff. Christianity has a very, very different answer. Christianity understands, rightly so, that there is suffering in the world. And here's the exciting part about Christianity. God and Christ do not give you a way out of suffering. They invite you into it. Who's excited? (laughs) Right? Woo! Thanks, God! You don't know lot. You don't take us out of suffering. You want to bring us into it. You're the best. That's Christianity. That's God's story, his novel. Suffering is a part of life. And he actually invites you into it. And if you're honest with yourself, sometimes it feels like a pretty lousy novel. Sometimes the idea of God being all-loving and all-powerful and being your, the one that's going to provide you protection and rest and refuge doesn't quite make sense. You might as well turn to the things that you can actually use today and tomorrow and will make you feel better for a moment. And the question is, does God desire you and me to just kind of throw our hands up and say, you know what, God, I'm just going to believe you. You're all powerful. You're all loving. And suffering's just a part of life. Okay. Maybe we agree with Kelly Clarkson who ripped off Nietzsche, that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Yeah. Woo! A lot of you never heard that song. But is that, is that our position, right? Is that our position? God, your refuge, your rest, Psalm 62, so beautiful, not really true in my life, but I'm going to try to live it out. I'm going to pour my heart out to you. I'm going to not set my heart upon riches. But then I have this issue of suffering and adversity, and you're supposed to be all loving, and you're supposed to be all powerful, and it doesn't really make sense to me. I'm just going to try to clench my fists and believe it and believe that the God that allowed me to go through this is also the God that's going to protect me and give me rest and refuge. You see, rest and refuge isn't, doesn't provide for you a force field away from pain and suffering. See, God sent Christ to earth not to give you some philosophical or mystical logical explanation to answer the problem of suffering. He participated in our suffering and he invites us to participate in it with him. This is the gospel story. See, I believe for myself, if you're like me, the reason you don't turn to God 
daily and consistently as your refuge and your rest, it's not because you don't necessarily believe that that could be so. It's because you kind of view God as this cold, absentee, indifferent landlord who's way out there in heaven and he's really, really far away. And he's kind of up there and he's kind of looking at you and he's saying, listen, suffering's a part of life. You just need to deal with it. You know, like, just read my word some more, do some more prayer, go to, you know, go to church, do that kind of stuff. And listen, also, the reason you're suffering is because you're sinful and other people are sinful. So just kind of like deal with it. Believe in Jesus. He forgives you. You'll be with me one day. It's like, that's kind of the mentality that sometimes we have of God. He's, he's way out there. He's not here with us in the suffering. But the Bible presents a very different view of God, and Psalm 62 has a very different view of God, a God that's all-loving and all-powerful, a God that is always present and available in suffering. People have asked, where was God in the Holocaust? He was in the gas chambers. He's with every child and every baby that suffers. He's with every woman, woman that's trafficked across the world daily. He's with all those that are oppressed and abused. He's always with the victim and never with the victimizer. We have a God of love. That's who our God is. You see, there's an illustration that I read from from Peter Kreeft. And he talks about this illustration like this to convey the love of God. And he says, imagine there's a guy driving and he's driving through a blizzard, which we experience all the time. He's driving through a blizzard. It's late at night. It's one in the morning. He's coming home from a Thanksgiving dinner, let's just say so you can remember at Thanksgiving. And he's driving, and his car stalls out. He's not a mechanic. He has no idea what to do. And so he gets out of the car, and he's freezing. He gets back in the car, and he's looking for his cell phone. He can't find his cell phone anywhere. He's like, oh, no. He's in the middle of, like, the woods. So he can't call a cab. He can't call a tow truck. He remembers that he's about mm, a few miles, maybe about two miles from his friend. So he gets out of the car. He puts on his coat, and he makes the trek, frees him to his friend's house, and he says, listen, can you come with me? My car's about two miles away. I don't want to leave it there. Um, can you just help me, like, get it out? Maybe you could look at it. We could call someone. So his friend comes. They trudge out. Now it's getting really cold. The blizzard's really, really coming down. And his friend realizes, oh, my gosh, I left my phone. I can't call a cab, can't call a taxi. And now the snow is like coming in. It's like not a good idea to go back to the house. So his friend looks at him and says, listen, I'm just going to stay with you in the car tonight. Let's get in. We'll have, uh, you know, seat talk, which is like pillow talk, but seat talk in the car. We'll chat it up. We'll have a good time. We'll try to get some rest. We'll try to stay warm. He stays with him. And in the morning, they get up and go back to the house to get a cell phone, call a tow truck, get the car out. They're fine. See, in the story, it would have been very, very convenient if one of the two had a cell phone, so you could have called a taxi, you could have called a tow truck and got them out of there, right? But what's a greater example of love? Removing them from their situation or the friend coming and sitting in the car with him? See, this is who our God is. He doesn't come to us in suffering and say, all right, I'm going to give you some answer that's going to suffice or some, you know, beam me up Scotty way to get you out of suffering. He comes and he's with us in it. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that's a refuge and a rest, present and available in our suffering. So we don't, we don't say our God is in heaven and everything's okay in the world and we're feeling good and I'm fine. 
We don't really say that. We say, you know what? Things are not okay, and this world is not okay, and oftentimes I'm not okay, but at least we have a God who's here in it with us. We don't have a nicely packaged, logically ordered answer to the problem of suffering, but we do have a love story. We have a God, as in Psalm 62, that is with us in our suffering, in our adversity, and he's also with us in our prosperity. And he's, David is asking us, pour your heart out to that God. Not some cold, distant, absentee God. This one that is here, in the moment, in your circumstance, at all times. Pray to him. Francis Spufford speaks a prayer like this, and I think this is perfect. He says, when I pray, I'm not praying to a philosophically complicated absentee creator. When I manage to pay attention to the continual love song, I'm not trying to envisage the impossible to imagine domain beyond the universe. I do not picture kings or thrones or crystal pavements or any other possible cosmological updating of these things. I look across, not up. I look into the world, not out or away. When I pray, I see a face, a human face among other human faces. It's a face in an angry crowd, a crowd engorged by the confidence it is doing the right thing, that it is being virtuous. The man in the middle of the crowd does not look virtuous. He looks tired and frightened and battered by the passions around him, but he's the crowd's focus and center. The center of everything, in fact. Because if you are a Christian, you do not believe that the characteristic action of God is to mold the course of history powerfully from afar. For a Christian... The most essential thing God does in time, in all of human history, is to be the man in the crowd, a man under arrest, and on his way to our common catastrophe. That's powerful. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that's a refuge. He's not a refuge distant and afar, trying to bring you out to some lofty place. He's a God that's right next to you at all times, suffering, adversity, joy, and prosperity. Right next to you, listening to you, holding you, comforting you. And that's why he's worthy of us pouring our life out to him. That's why he's worthy of us setting our heart upon him. That's why he's so much better than the impressive teetering walls that we erect and that we build and that we trust in. Because he never fails. He's all-powerful, and he's all-loving at all times. You see, we don't have an answer to the problem of suffering, but we do have a word, and his name is Jesus. And he's there always. He participated in our suffering, and now he comes to be alongside you in yours. He sympathizes with your weakness. And so he is worthy of us to pour our heart out before him and to seek him daily in that way. So the question is, who do you choose? At all times, in times of prosperity and in times of suffering and adversity, where do you set your heart upon? Where do you pour your heart out to? Let's pray. God, you are incredible. We are so amazed and we are so thankful. Honestly, God, that you don't give us an answer to the problem of suffering. You gave us Jesus. God, that you don't come to remove us, you come to be with us. You stand next to us, holding us, listening to us, caring for us in our time of need and in our time of increase.
Lord, we are unstable. God, I am unstable. I often weigh the options of choosing the impressive-looking wall or you, God. I pray that this morning as we look at your word and as we've read, that all of us together as a community, as brothers and sisters in Christ, would set our heart upon you, would pour our heart out to you daily, regardless of what we're going through, recognizing that you only are refuge and rest. You only are hope and salvation. You are the fortress. God, build your life upon us and don't, in your grace, please keep us from building our walls away from you. Help us to choose you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.